You may be seated. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, we're looking at verses 1 through 6 this morning. I came across a, a helpful definition that I thought was given from a, um, an interesting point of view or perspective. It's, it's Martin Luther, um, and in his larger catechism, as he's reflecting upon the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before you. You know, we would think um, there in the larger and shorter catechism, you begin to have a definition of who God is infinite, eternal, and changeable, and it's, it's all references that you find in Scripture to God. But in, in Luther's definition, he sort of gives it from the perspective of man. Uh, who, who is God to, to you? And in that sense, what is God? So it, it's, it's not necessarily the true God, right? And here's his answer. He says this, a God is the term for that to which we are to look for all good and in which we are to find refuge in all need. Therefore, to have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe in that one with your whole heart. As I have often said, it's, it's the trust and faith of the heart alone that makes both God and an idol. If your faith and trust are right, then your God is the true one. Conversely, where your trust is false and wrong, there you do not have the true God. For these two belong together, faith and God. Anything on which your heart relies and depends, I say, that is really your God. Anything that your heart clings to, I've heard others translate it. Anything that your heart clings to, you've made your God. There's only one true God. He's not denying that, but he's saying you may have many gods, right? And it's whatever you're placing your hope and your trust, whatever your heart is clinging to, that is what's functioning as your God, whether it's the true God or not. And you're always clinging to something. So Hebrews, as we've seen, has been building this argument. The author of Hebrews has been building this argument that Jesus is greater than everything else, any alternative. There's nothing better. And so he spent most of the first two chapters comparing Jesus to angels, and it does seem to be consistent with with the thought that several were tempted to worship angels at this time. Um, Even where the author discussed Christ's high priestly work in chapter 2, verse 17, he did so by clarifying his work Uh, that makes his authority superior to angels. So even in that context where he's beginning to do some some various things with his argument, really pointing forward to where he's going to go in the rest of the the letter or the sermon, he also recognizes that 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 he's still making that case, that Christ is superior to the angels. Um, So in this third chapter, he begins to transition really to a comparison between Jesus and Moses. Um, And once again, the emphasis is upon Christ's superiority to Moses. And why would he do this? Well, because the original audience had a veneration for Moses. They they didn't worship Moses, but they had a very high regard for him. So much so that they were ready to go back, really, to to Judaism, go back to the synagogue 
to worship there. It's, it's almost as if they're saying, I have my Savior in the Old Covenant. My Savior's there. And what Moses provides is the God that I want to trust in. And to do so is to turn away from the one true God who fulfills all that the Old Testament pointed forward to. So just as the original audience held angels in high regard, they also recognized Moses as an exemplary leader of the people of God. He, he led them out of bondage in Egypt and represented them before God. Really, he has this kind of priestly role, and he's also referenced as, as a prophet. You know, he's, he has a, he, he's even a, a, rule, so a ruler, right? a leader of the people. So he has all these roles that, that really point forward to the fulfillment in Christ. And so there's much to commend him for, in fact. While, while this is the other thing, is that Moses is doing all of this. He's leading, he's representing the people while they're wandering in, in, the, in the wilderness, while they're grumbling and complaining, while they're even complaining against his authority to bring them out of Egypt. They're rebelling against him. And over and over again to this ungrateful generation, Moses intercedes on their behalf. He goes to God in prayer. And he stands in their place. And yet, what this passage is telling us is that Moses was only a shadow of the true leader. That Verse 3 says, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. So just as these Hebrew Christians were tempted to drift away from Christ to return to Moses for their salvation. So we are often prone to look to alternative saviors and to turn everything and everyone else into a God for us. The remedy is not to try to label everything else as an idol, to analyze and discover all of these things that could be idols, but to invest ourselves more and more into what is superior. Again, that's, that's the point of, of Hebrews. And so the assurance of our salvation is the fruit of a mind that is settled upon the superiority of Christ. And if you lack assurance this morning, it is because your eyes have, have turned away from the superiority of Christ and begun to look maybe at your circumstances, maybe looking to someone else, some future promise that, that is that is not the inheritance that awaits us, that Christ has promised to us, but some, some idea about tomorrow that you're looking for and you're trusting in. Right? So if you, if you want to regain that assurance of your salvation, it's the fruit of a mind that is settled upon the superiority of Christ. And so we'll see that in three different ways this morning. But before we read, let's ask the Lord for his help and understanding. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we know that every time we open it, Lord, you are speaking. And sometimes we are deaf to what you're saying. Sometimes our hearts have been hardened and we might open it, but, our, but we're not engaged and we're not thinking clearly or rightly. Lord, we know that if that is the case, that it can be a, fr a fruitless endeavor. We need your spirit, Lord, to do a work in our hearts, to give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and to soften our hearts, to respond in obedience. And so, Lord, we come expecting you to do that. We come asking you, not presumptuous, but desiring you to do that work that only you can do. And, Lord, we want to ultimately give you the glory that only you are worthy to receive. And so arrest our minds and our hearts, our affections now. Direct them to you. 
May you be, may you remain at the center of our thoughts throughout this service and the rest of this day that you've given to us, set apart from all of the other distractions that await. Lord, we want to rest in you. For your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Amen. This is God's holy word. The first point in your outline is to consider the faithfulness of Jesus. And we actually see this idea of faithfulness in the beginning and end. It's really one of, it's probably the main theme of this passage. So we'll spend a considerable amount of time there. Um, right? It's the Christ who is faithful over God's house. Um, but here in, in verse 2, who, who was faithful to him who appointed him? He was faithful to his father who appointed him as what? As the apostle and high priest. The word there is actually made. This is one of the debates in the early church where, uh, where it says that he was, instead of appointed, it says he was made. Uh, the, he was faithful to him who made him. And so some would say, Jesus was made. See right there. The Arians are right all along. And the early church had to, had to re- reject that. And, and one of the ways they understood it was that he made, the, he made him for a purpose, to be the apostle. He made him to be the apostle and high priest. He wasn't, he wasn't forming him out of, out of nothing. He wasn't creating him in that sense. But he was giving him a, a priority and a mission. And so consider the faithfulness of Jesus. It begins there with the word therefore, which always connects us to the argument that he had just made. So in the previous passage, he's been, he's arguing uh, that Christ has the ability to help those who are suffering under temptation because he himself has also suffered under temptation. And if there's any reluctance to look to Jesus for help, what he's about to say is that our primary problem is that we don't know Jesus. Right? If, if we're reluctant to look to him for aid and help, then we clearly don't know who he is. And that's our primary problem. So now he wants them to consider Jesus. That's the solution. Consider Jesus. And that's the only command in this passage. All, all six verses, the one command is to consider Jesus. And so that's where we're going to elaborate that. How does he consider Jesus in this passage? First of all, he considers his faithfulness, and he likens it to Moses. Um, He reminds them, though, first of all, that they are holy brothers. Therefore, holy brothers. Again, go back to chapter 2, verse 11. What does he say there? For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all or all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. 
And so this is really just a summary or a truncated version of, that, of saying the same thing, that he has sanctified them, he's made them holy, they've now been adopted into the family because of that work of Christ on their behalf. They are holy brothers. And they participate in the same heavenly calling. So they've not only been set apart from the world as children adopted into the family of God, but they have, a, they have received a, a call, an irrevocable call, according to Romans eleven twenty nine. This heavenly calling, you might say, is the effectual call of God that invites them into the, the place, uh, to, to, that invites them to place their faith in Christ. And it's the effectual call of God. It's a heavenly calling upon them. Uh, he'll talk about that more in Hebrews 9. But they've received this divine call not to be like everyone else, not to be conformed to this world, but to order their minds according to these heavenly priorities. And this calling gives them purpose and meaning to live in such a way that pleases their creator. Instead of seeking their own pleasure, they now recognize their highest satisfaction in living for God and not themselves. And this divine calling fills them with hope in this glorious inheritance that awaits. And so the author tells his holy brothers to consider Jesus because he knows Jesus can help them overcome whatever temptation they are suffering. This is the only command, again, they're to devote their mind to reflect upon Jesus. And we often think of this, uh, this idea of con- confession Right, our, our confession. He's the apostle and high priest of our confession. And we hear that and we think maybe the confession of faith. Um, and there, there's some like doctrinal standards, some set of, of, of the faith that is being adopted here. But the word really um, consistently in scripture the, in the Greek has a, a different meaning than that. It, it, it's referring to a profession of faith. It's our, our confession that Jesus is who he said he is, right? It's, our, our, it's placing our trust in him. So Jesus is the one in whom we place our faith. He's the one in whom our hearts rely upon. He's the one we're to cling to. And so as the apostle of their, <coughs> of their confession, Jesus was sent by God. That's the word. This is the only time you, you have the word apostle applied to Jesus in the New Testament. Right? It's, it's always referencing to the, his disciples, the 12. But here it's referred to Jesus. Now, the term is, is broader than just in the New Testament, right? And it, it means that, that someone is sent. And so it's a reference here that God has sent him as the apostle. God has given him a purpose, right? He's designated as the steward of the house of God. The, the apostles were the stewards of, God, of God's special revelation, especially you know, the pinnacle of that revelation in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So they were to, to steward that revealed word and share it with others, proclaim that truth. So they heard the word of God given through his son. They preserved that testimony, and then they were witnesses to it for the rest of their lives. So that's, the, that's what an apostle did, right? That's, so here, it's, it's basically suggesting that Jesus is the pioneer of that message. He's the one who brought that. He sent Jesus to give that message to his disciples and then for them to make disciples with what he taught them. 
So as the high priest of their confession, then Jesus continues to represent and uphold them before his father. The author will, will build upon this argument over several chapters later on in Hebrews. In fact, one commentator, uh, Robert Paul Martin, he views this verse, this first verse, the apostle and high priest of our confession as, as really a summary statement of the next, of chapters thir- uh, chapter three all the way through 12, 17. He would say chapter three and four talks about Jesus as the apostle or the, the representative who's better than Moses. And then chapters five, through 1217 would be the reference to Jesus being superior to the old covenant priesthood. So that, that's a, a good little way to, to think about the rest, you know, the next year that will be in Hebrews, right? It's just thinking about this argument that Jesus is superior to Moses. He's superior to the, or he is an apostle who's superior to Moses, and he is a high priest, the great high priest who's superior to the old covenant priesthood. So this idea of faithfulness, I, I wonder, I'm under the impression, this is more anecdotal than anything, but I'm under the impression that it's not really an idea that many people value anymore, unless they're pursuing a, a greater, deeper relationship with God. Right? It's, it's not something that the world tends to value, this idea of faithfulness. Maybe it cuts against their notions of, of, of freedom, or their notions of, of self-expression or something like that, that, that faithfulness, like, it, it, it needs to be more fluid. Faithful is the opposite of fluid, right? Faithfulness doesn't give me freedom. I, I can't say what I want to say, be who I want to be, live how I want to live, whenever I want to do it. And so I can't be autonomous. This idea of faithfulness seems to be only really related to those who are intentionally seeking to be religious or seeking to know and honor God. I say intentionally because there is a sense in which we're made in the image of God. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has placed eternity in our hearts. And so they cannot help being religious. But it would appear that, that only those who are interested in the topic of faithfulness are those who are pursuing that deeper relationship with God. And so Jesus can help this community, this community of Hebrew Christians as they struggle to be faithful to their heavenly calling. Why do we say that? Because the warning passages are throughout this this letter. Look at, we've seen it already in chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Why is he warning them about drifting away? Well, because he's concerned that some of them are. He's concerned that some of them will. Look ahead, we'll, we'll, we may get to this next week. We should be able to. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. I mean, that's a, a, a very clear warning of apostasy against those that he's writing to who are professing believers So notice the way the author encourages them here in this verse. Just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house, he points to this faithfulness of the son to him who appointed him. Notice he's calling them to be faithful in an indirect way. He's not just saying be faithful. He'll say that 
later. But here he's, he's acknowledging or he's exhorting them to consider the faithfulness of Jesus. Even as they know that they are encouraged by the faithfulness of Moses. They reflect upon Moses with gratitude for what he accomplished and did for their people. And what this author is saying is you need to consider the faithfulness of Jesus. One commentator said it's difficult to exaggerate the importance of Moses in Judaism and the veneration with which he was regarded. It's difficult to exaggerate it. They had a high regard, but even more so, they should be familiar with the faithfulness of Jesus. David Strain comments on this passage. He says, the faithfulness of Christ to God is the faithfulness of the son toward his father. In pursuit of our salvation, according to the terms of the covenant of redemption. So it has us in mind, but his faithfulness is to God the father. That's, where, that's, that's what his faithfulness is rooted in. It's in his relationship to his father. And he goes on to say, this means that whenever we speak of the faithfulness of God in Christ toward us, we are seeing only the tip of the iceberg. The faithfulness of God that we experience in the gospel is the part we can see above the waterline. But underneath this truth, giving it buoyancy, Holding it up for us to know and delight in is the greater part of God's faithfulness, often unnoticed and overlooked. His faithfulness to himself and the faithfulness of the Son to the Father in the accomplishment of our redemption for the glory of God's name. So do you see the the connection here? The Son's faithfulness to the Father is what can encourage those who are weary and struggling to maintain their own commitment to God. Turn your eyes away from your distressing circumstances and place them upon the faithfulness of the Son to the Father's plan of redemption. And you'll begin to lose sight of your problems. Meditate upon the Son's willingness to fulfill the covenant of redemption on your behalf even though he knew better than you how often you would be tempted by infidelity. It's, it's the illustration of Hosea as, the, as an illustration of God's love for his people and unfaithful people. He knew that, and yet he willingly came. He willingly took your place on the cross. So his faithfulness to the Father is what roots our confidence that he will remain faithful to us. That's what Paul tells Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. And so we could meditate upon Christ's faithfulness for the rest of the day, but, but let's just look at these next two briefly. Consider the glory of Jesus in verse, verses 3 and 4. Now, the author's not denigrating Moses, just like he wasn't denigrating the angels. But he's giving the son his proper place. Jesus is worthy of more respect and honor. Those who reject the ministry of the son are in greater danger than than anyone else because they are rejecting the very height of revelation. You look at Matthew 11, 21. They're in danger of greater condemnation if they reject the son. 
Another commentator said, Moses matters, says Hebrews, but Jesus matters even more. Moses was a true servant of God, but Jesus is God's son. You don't diminish Moses by making Jesus superior to him. You give him his rightful place, which is the place of honor, even though it's not the supreme honor. Speaking of Moses, you, you put him in a rightful place under the supreme superiority of the son. And this verse also compares uh, Jesus to this builder, right? He's the builder of the house. The, and then it says that the builder of all things is God. And so Jesus is called the builder who's been counted worthy of more glory. Jesus is the builder's faithful apostle in verses 1 and 2. But he's also the builder in verse 3. So he's identified with God but distinguished from the Father. Jesus is the branch, according to Zechariah 6, 12 through 13. He's the branch who would build the temple of the Lord. And yet we also know that he is the temple of the Lord. He tabernacles among us in Jesus. So once again, the author of Hebrews is equating Jesus with God. He has already referred to the Son as the exact imprint of God's nature. Notice, though, go back to to chapter 1, verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. There's a connection there between his identity, his nature with, the, with God, and yet this radiance of glory. He cited Psalm 45 in verse 8. Uh, he cites Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7, being spoken of the Son, saying, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So the the throne of God is the throne of the Son. So again, Jesus is the builder who's worthy of more glory than anyone else involved in the structure of this house because he is the builder. He is also the chief cornerstone upon which every other stone is laid. And so the only possible reason anyone would depart from Christ would be because they have a false perception that a greater glory is offered elsewhere. And we've talked about this, considering some of C.S. Lewis's thoughts on glory. And you can go back to the the sermon where I preached on on verse 3 of chapter 1. But just as I mentioned, it would seem that no one was really interested in, in faithfulness unless they're seeking religious insight. Glory is different. Everyone wants to be near what is glorious. Everyone's seeking to behold glory, even to obtain it for themselves. But everyone finds glory compelling, but they think it can be found in anything. And so what's interesting is that the very thing that they're not interested in, faithfulness, is the very thing that gives glory its weight. What makes the glory of anything else pale in comparison to the glory of Christ is the fact that it's fickle and fleeting, unlike Christ. The glory in the world is like a a vapor. You'll never find it apart from faithfulness. And the only way glory is attached to faithfulness is in the Son, 
in Jesus Christ. What makes Christ's glory superior is that it is perfectly consistent with his faithfulness. A faithful Savior is a glorious Savior, and so we can place our hope in him because he has all authority in heaven and earth. And that's the last point. Consider the authority of Jesus. Consider the authority. The primary comparison is between Moses here in verse 5, who was a servant in the house, and Christ, who is a son over the house. That's the reference to his authority. He's over the house, whereas Moses was a servant in the house. Now, Moses is called a, a servant not using the typical word doulos, but the word denotes a servant in high standing. It's sort of like the chief servant, the one who has already earned the respect of, the, of the, uh, the leader of the household or his master. John refers to Moses as a, a therapone. Now, I mean, John uh, in, in Revelation refers to, to Moses as a doulos, Revelation 15.3. So it's not inconsistent to think of him in that way as well, but but here it seems the author of Hebrews is safeguarding any denigration of Moses. At the same time, he's promoting an appreciation for the superiority of Jesus' authority. So Moses was worthy of honor, but Jesus is worthy of much more. Moses is considered a faithful member within God's house, but Jesus is the one who built the house. So who should you honor more? Well, the, what is God's house here? The house occurs, that word house occurs seven times in this passage, Hebrews 3, 2 through 6. It occurs seven times. In all three of the sections that we've looked at, we could have, we could have used house as a defining structural arrangement of this passage. What does it refer to? It's, it's in reference to the new covenant promise God made to the house of Israel. It's a reference to his people. It's not a, a building, but it's a gathered and assembled people. He'll reference it again in, in chapter 8, verses 8 and 10. And, and there he's actually quoting from the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. And then it'll occur one last time in, the, in use in Hebrews 10, 21, as a reference to the house of God. So... It occurred, um, the word house occurs there in Hebrews 3. I, I think I said 7, but I think it's actually 5. And then it's, it's uh, or maybe, no, 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 I take that back. It's seven times there, but it occurs another three times um, in Hebrews 8, and then one last time in Hebrews 10. So this theme clearly is concentrated here in this section of chapter 3. We've seen the comparison of Jesus' faithfulness to the faithfulness of Moses in all God's house. The previous section points to Jesus' superiority over Moses as the builder of the house has more glory than the house itself. And now we have a comparison between the roles of Moses and Christ within God's house, right? Moses is a servant in and Christ is a son over. So the house of God is consistently used in reference to the people of God. Jesus promised to build his church. He's adding numbers of people to his body. 
The house was a metaphor quite familiar to Israel. As I just mentioned, it's, it's quoted later on of Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, in relation to the house of Israel. It's, it's the, it was very common for the post-exilic prophets to refer to the house that would be restored. And the promises that were given to the house of Israel are now fulfilled in Christ, and they appropriately belong to the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Paul's, Paul uses that language of 1 Timothy. So the writer concludes this section with a direct application of this truth to his audience. He says, and we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Our membership in this house, just as our share in Christ, are conditioned upon our perseverance. Whoever does not persevere will not inherit the promises of God. To walk away from Christ, which is precisely what this original audience is tempted to do, is to forsake the fulfillment of the promises of God to the house of Israel. F.F. F. Bruce notes that to have every, they have everything to gain by standing fast, by persevering. They have everything to gain and everything to lose by slipping back. And so the promise of God is relevant here. Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. And so we have to, we, we follow him, we trust in him to bring us all the way home. That we can trust his promise to complete the work that he began because he has the authority to do so. As he says, I go to prepare a place for you. In my father's house, there are many rooms. He's going to, to, to prepare that place. We have no more reason to doubt our ability to hold fast than we do to doubt his faithfulness as a son. If he is faithful, then he will complete that work that he began. And maybe you think, I, I, don't, I don't belong in, in church. Maybe there's doubt in your mind when you attend. And you aren't sure that you're worthy to be here. And, and the fact is that you're as worthy as the rest of us. That only in Christ do we have the authority to approach the throne of grace. And only as we are united to him are we made right with God. And so we cling to Christ because he is our only hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. For your word, we thank you for this reminder. Lord, that we do make for ourselves idols. We make for ourselves gods of, in our own, after our own image, to our own liking. And we pursue after those things for our own glory and benefit. And we delight in the idea that we can shift our focus from one god to the next that we can have many gods. That's always been the challenge and the threat to the people of God. We're always, we're always intrigued by what our neighbors have. 
whether we think it's some sense of, of freedom or authority or autonomy. And yet, Lord, we find here that, that it is only as we consider Christ that we find the assurance that we need, that we're desperately looking for. Lord, may we continue to, to hold Christ before us, hold his attributes, his faithfulness, his glory, his authority before our eyes. May, they, may we see in them a superiority that, that surpasses anything else that might tempt us so that departing from him would be unthinkable. And Lord, we know that you are faithful to complete that work which you've began. And so we cling to you. We trust that you are doing that work in us and through us. For your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand as we sing our hymn of response. We will feast in the house of Zion. You'll find that in your song insert. Please stand.
Amen. You may be seated. As we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, we confess what it is we believe. We're making this profession of faith as we recite together the Apostles' Creed. So if you're a believer with us, I encourage you to join us in reciting this. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Even as we confess what it is we believe, we also take some time to confess our sin. We acknowledge that we have not lived up to the, the righteous standard of holiness, right? but we've fallen far short of that. And so Psalm 51, 5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. And so let's take some time to confess our sin to the only one who gives us that assurance of pardon that we long to hear. <clears throat> 